Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. On today's episode, we have tech expert, entrepreneur, and founder of three successful tech companies, Matt Watson. As a technical and product-focused founder, Matt has a unique talent for balancing technology and business goals and knows what it takes to sell his business when the time is right. In his first successful exit, Matt built the largest automotive-focused CRM platform in North America called Vin Solutions, and he sold it to AutoTrader for $150 million in 2011. After selling his second technology company, Stackify, Matt is now focused on building out his current software development firm, Full Scale. Leveraging all of his experiences, Matt is also the host of the Startup Hustle podcast, where he shares insights, tips, and stories from his own entrepreneurial journey and from some of the most successful business leaders in the world. In today's conversation, we talk about being open-minded to either raising capital or selling your business to enable the next stage of growth. Matt also shares how important it is to understand how your earnout is achieved when you're no longer making all the decisions. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Matt Watson. Matt, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. I was really excited to think about this conversation and all the things that not only you can give as a technical founder of businesses, but you've sold two businesses. So I know our fellow founders are going to get a ton of advice and great stories out of you, but also you're, you're a really accomplished podcaster. When you decided that you wanted this time slot, I had no problem bumping Mark Cuban. So we really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Well, I would have bumped him too. So thank you. <laughs> well, let's see. Let's let's jump in, right? You've built a couple of companies, but let's start from kind of those early days. Like what brought you into entrepreneurship in the first place? You know, I grew up um, as a very young kid working with my parents at the flea market. So I don't know about where you live, if there's local flea markets, but here in Kansas City, there's one at a drive-in and most people yep. don't remember what the hell a drive-in is, but you know, where you drive your car and watch yep. a movie on a big screen, right? So for whatever reason at that drive-in, they had a swap shop, they called it every weekend. And I went out there with my dad for almost 10 years, every single weekend and slept in the car the night before to have our place in line and and he sold all sorts of weird stuff. And I would go around town with him and buy stuff at garage sales and help him. And like, so I like had that work ethic at an early age and helped him. And I guess maybe that helped fueled my entrepreneurial spirit. Oh, that's great. So was this your dad's kind of primary source of income or a hobby on the side? Okay, this is it. Now, this was the main, the main thing. Yeah. I mean, he made a few hundred dollars a, mo- a week doing it. And that was enough to it's like he worked on the weekend and like one day a week, you know, buying stuff, wholesaling stuff, you know, going to the garage sale, whatever. Yeah, I think we grew up maybe similarly in that my dad was a an entrepreneur as well, sewing clothes. So his mom actually sewed tennis dresses and I I found one on eBay. It's like 70 years old and, and just bought it. And then my dad, um, you know, followed in her footsteps. And so I grew up going to all of the, the kind of the manufacturing facility, which is just like a row of sewing machines and seeing him get the order and then produce, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of tennis clothes, t-shirts, sweatshirts. So, uh, yeah, similar, right. We get influenced by our parents. So what made you 
kind of jump and say, it's time to start my own business? You go to college first. What was your story? Well, I think I was just opportunistic. I, I went to college at DeVry University, which is a non-traditional tech school, but you get a bachelor's degree um, for computer information systems, it's computer programming, basically. And about halfway through that, I, I got my, my first real job. But I was, even before that, I was always just very opportunistic. I did, worked on uh, some other projects on the side for people, and I was just very opportunistic, you know. And my original thrust into this is I was, while in college, I was working at Sears, and a car dealer came in to buy a computer. And just like everybody else who comes in to buy a computer, ask him, you know, what kind of computer do you need? What are you going to use it for, et cetera? And he told me I had a little database that tracked everything for his car dealership, and some software developer wrote it, but it, he's worried that the software developer is <laughs> crazy and they're going to run off and blah, blah, blah. And so I just told him, well, maybe I can help you. And like, that was it. I just started help, helping him. And I spent the next two to three years rewriting this guy's little database, which was a Microsoft Access database and rewrote it and um, built a relationship with him. And, you know, fast forward to where Venn Solutions started the my co-founder had been working for autotrader.com going around taking pictures of cars to upload them to autotrader.com but was looking for a software developer to help automate some things and simplify what he was doing because it was kind of a side hustle for him he wasn't supposed to be doing that for autotrader he was just supposed to be selling the the advertising and the dealership was supposed to take their own photos but of course this was 2003 and car dealers didn't have digital cameras like anybody else and um that same car dealership connected the two of us. So that relationship that I had from building that little database for that dealership is what ultimately led to meeting my co-founder. Oh, that's fantastic. I get really excited when businesses get started because a, a customer need, an actual customer need is identified and you're, you're building towards a customer, right? So making that individual or that business really happy with your solution and then you can expand from there. But can you tell more? I think it's such a great story of your, your co-founder, right? Like, wanting to just do a better job and in order to do a better job, right, has to break outside of what his role is and take these photos. So he, you know, he was working for Auto Trader magazine. So if you remember back then it was, you know, in all the grocery stores and convenience stores, right? You'd have Auto Trader the magazine. And back then, weirdly enough, autotrader.com was still new and was free. So for the car dealers, they didn't even charge for it. Now you fast forward to today and that's like a billion dollar industry. And the magazine is dead, right? The magazine was gone, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So, yeah, he was going around trying to get people to move and do the the dot-com stuff because that was part of his incentivization uh, as being a rep. But he couldn't get the dealers to take the photos, right? And so he that became like a side hustle for him. He'd be like, hey, I'll charge you a couple hundred bucks a week. I'll come by and I'll take the photos for you as long as you'll also sign up for auto trader and you know, I get my commission and stuff. Right. Yeah. So yeah, we were just trying to solve a problem. Like he had a legit problem, saw the problem and was trying to solve it. And I was just the guy that could help write the code. I was the, you look at Zuckerberg and the Winkle bosses. Like I was the Zuckerberg and he was the Winkle boss. Right. And, uh, I was just a guy. And I, at the time I was 22 years old. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was just opportunistic back to what we mentioned earlier. It's like, I was just, guy looking for something to do. Yeah. Not bad being just the Zuckerberg though. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, all right. You know, you, this is a side hustle. At some point it becomes a real business. What's the trigger? Yeah. So it, it started out, he had like 15 or 20 clients lined up. He was going around taking pictures for, and, um, 
I started building the software, built a little database to track cars, track inventory, uh, put all the pricing stuff in, and then basically syndicated that data to places like AutoTrader, Cars.com, you know, different things like that, their, their websites and stuff. And they also printed window stickers and, and did some other things. But I, um, I was working at that time in a medical laboratory. I was like the lead software developer. And we started getting some, you know, traction, a little bit of revenue with the, this little business that I convinced my boss that I would work 6 a.m. till noon every day. Mm-hmm. I cut my hours to 30 hours a week, and then I would go home in the afternoon and work basically till bedtime every single day, wow. hustling, trying to make this work. Yeah. And I did that for probably a year, a year and a half or, or more, like, you know, working on this um, as kind of a side hustle while I still had a full-time job because I couldn't, we couldn't afford to pay myself. And then eventually I quit, but it was probably a year and a half plus before I was able to, to take at least a salary that I could accept. Um, I was still a lower salary than my job, but be able to do it full time. Yeah. It's amazing to me. These entrepreneurial stories, they start with so much hustle and then it's perseverance, right? It's never give up and you're willing to sacrifice. You know what you want. You're going to take a smaller salary a year later, right? You figured out how to get there. Um, okay. So the year goes by, you've jumped in full time. Uh, it seems like you have a, a suite of, of products that you're offering, or maybe it's all bundled in as, as one product, but you know, why are you winning at that point? Yeah, we were, we were in the early days of helping car dealers move to digital marketing, right? Mm-hmm. To online, we'll call it e-commerce or whatever, although it's not exactly e-commerce for automotive, but all the online presence of all of this, right? And there were, there were other people that were doing it a few different places. Ultimately, what really was the big trigger for us was we decided to move into doing the lead management kind of CRM side of it. Mm-hmm. And that was in like 2007, probably, that we we kind of made that kind of pivot. And that was, you know, like the third, fourth year into the company. Okay. Now, we were successful. We had revenue. We probably had a couple million dollars in revenue or something like that before then. I don't remember what the exact numbers were. But, you know, we were successful and we were making money and stuff. But we saw the opportunity to do the the lead management CRM side of it because that was still in its infancy. Mm-hmm. Like, so to explain, it's like if you go to autotrader.com and you submit a lead, what happens to that lead, right? It, it goes into some database where they, they track all the people that submitted a lead and follow up with them and email them and all that kind of stuff, right? So that kind of technology is fairly common these days. There's lots of CRM systems that exist, you know, Salesforce and HubSpot and all these things. But back then, it, it there were some products that existed, but they weren't designed around email. They weren't very good at emailing. Like, so you couldn't email like a brochure of a car, things like that, like photos of a car. They couldn't, they couldn't email photos of a car. Like that was a foreign thing to these things. Mm-hmm. So we were one of the first ones to like really do that and do a fantastic job at it. And we just killed it. And the uh, recession actually helped us tremendously. So talk about raising capital and stuff. We tried to raise money in like 2008, 2009 during the recession, but that was a terrible time to raise money. But the recession helped us tremendously because all these car dealers stopped spending money on traditional media. Mm-hmm. They stopped advertising in newspapers and TV and magazines and all this stuff and focused more and more on the digital side. And we were right there and we had a product that could save them money. So they might have had a, yeah. an old expensive CRM system they were paying a lot of money for that didn't do email very well, didn't do digital marketing related stuff. And so we had a, a better, faster, cheaper product that was cloud-based with no contracts. And it was we were just in the right place at the right time and we just crushed it. It, it seems like you did. There were competitors that 
where a dealer had to sign up for multiple competitors to get yes. everything what you were offering. Yes. And then you just said no contracts, right? That's probably- We had no contracts. That's pretty unusual, right, in automotive. So you get yep. to really try you out. You see the real benefit as a customer in the product, and then you've got them hooked. Back then, you know, a lot of these bigger companies, it was more of an enterprise sale to buy a CRM system, right? You're like, oh, you buy a server, you install it on site, and you pay $40,000 for the software yep. for a three-year contract. Right. And then the problem was our competitors would take those contracts and they would factor them and sell them off, mm -hmm. right? If you've ever been around people that do that, they would factor the contracts yep. and sell them. So then our competitors had no revenue at all. And then we literally put one of them out of business because they had no recurring revenue. They had to sell like these contracts every month and factor them and and sell them. That was like the drug that they, mm -hmm. they have to keep living on, sure. right? We put one of them out of business completely because they had no recurring revenue to fall back on. But that that whole, you know, server-based, you know, big contracts, all that, that all died. Everything went to SaaS. We were on the forefront of the SaaS. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, so you continue to grow the business. That was around 07, 08. You grow... 9, 10, 11, you sell to AutoTrader in, in 11, right? Can you talk to me yeah. about what what was the kind of the key to getting that started? Who approached who? Did you hire people? Were you looking to sell? Yeah. All that? So I, I would say from like 2008, 9, 10, 11, we basically doubled year over year, almost every year, somewhere around like 80 to 100% plus growth, you know, year over year over year yep. in employees and revenue. So when we sold in... 2011, we had about 35 million a year in revenue. And so we kind of worked backwards from that on where we were. Mm -hmm. So in 2008, 2009, we, we wanted to raise capital because the company had never raised any money at all, except for like 100, 200 grand that some of us had kind of thrown into it, like no major kind of funds at all. Sure. And we really needed to raise money because we were growing, we we're growing fast, but we were highly undercapitalized. You know, we didn't have money for servers and all that kind of stuff because amazon aws like none of that existed then and we also couldn't train people fast enough like we literally couldn't do anything fast enough at all so we we looked at raising capital but really struggled with it we eventually got we tried to raise some mezzanine financing mm -hmm. and we hired a cfo to come in and help do all of that and he led the effort to find a deal that was a mezzanine deal. And then he finally brought it to us and they wanted like 12 or 14% interest. Plus we had to give up equity in the company and we're oh, like, wow. no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we killed the whole thing and then basically said, fine, like six months have went by you, what you like, you were in your office for six months talking to all these bankers about all this bullshit. Yeah. Let's just start the process over. So we basically just started the process over, but this time went more towards the private equity side and the VC side. Yep. Um, and that was probably uh, the very end of 2010. We kind of restarted that whole process. And again, we originally went into it thinking we were going to sell 30% of the company or something like that, right? Like we wanted to raise 20, $30 million, whatever. Mm -hmm. We would take some secondary capital, put it in our pockets, and then use the rest of it to you know, fund the growth, right? Like that's how we would use the proceeds. And um, yeah, started, started that whole dance. That's great. Uh, th there's a bit there, right? So maybe let's jump back to the the growth rate. I think a great lesson in growth rate is that when you actually went to sell your business, you were doubling year over year over year. And we, we love our sports analogies. And so founders should know that it makes a lot of sense if you're trying to kind of maximize your ROI, your return on that investment that you're making. Selling a business in the fourth inning instead of the seventh, eighth, or ninth 
where you, you've got a lead, you've put runs on the board, the heart of the lineup's com coming up, you're selling that future, that those future cash flows, and buyers are really willing to pay for it. When you're at the end and the growth rate is really starting to tail off, that becomes so much less interesting to buyers. So, you know, when you're going to market with all of that, right, you've got that growth rate track record. So that's fantastic. What's interesting is you started out going after debt, right, to fund growth. Yeah. And you just, you ran into those roadblocks, you reset, and now you're saying, okay, let's look at what equity can get us selling our equity. And you said- well, And the recession was over too. Like we were coming out of the recession as well. Yep. And so you're, you've got kind of two groups that you're looking at, private equity and venture. So venture's really used to like, here's a bunch of money and we think you're going to the moon and we're going to take minority share of your business. Typically what, anywhere from call it 15 to 30% of the business, maybe 2025 is where they're thinking. Private equity typically is looking for, to make control investments, right? So 51% and up. Some of the kind of growth capital can be minority, but what were you initially targeting? Was selling like 20, 30, 40% okay. of the company. And, you know, granted, so this was 12 years ago yep. and private equity and VC definitely existed then, but private equity today is very different than it was then, right? Yes. Like, right. It's very different now than it was then, right? So back then it probably existed. People like KKR and stuff like that existed that did big, big investments. But today it's like super common. Like there's gotta be like a hundred times more of it today than it was then. So back then, it almost felt like VC and private equity were sort of the same, like yep. didn't really understand the difference. It was just controlling interest or non-controlling interest, yep. I guess. And like, we didn't really know. We were just talking to people who wanted to invest. And we had a couple that wanted to buy 100%. You know, they were willing to buy 100% even. And it was like a true private equity 100% deal. Yeah, I, I know I just had a meeting with a founder that is thinking about, okay, we like to have some money really to have some cushion to order more inventory because we're just growing really, really quickly and looking at debt and looking at potentially venture capital. And one of the big differences, and I think it was the same, you know, when you were taking a look at it is, you know, once you take those private equity dollars, which would include venture capital, you're on somebody else's clock now. Your job is to return their, you know, their money plus, you know, a return on that investment over a period of time. Whereas the debt, you can pay off and still say, hey, I'm on my own clock. I can run this for another 10 years if I want. Did that kind of cross your mind when you jumped ship to look at venture? I mean, at that time, we were just trying to survive like the yep. growth. You know, people always say they, you know, they want more business, they know what to do with, and they want that problem yeah, yeah. and whatever. We had that problem and it was not fun at all. Yeah. You know, like, when you sign, we would sign up like 50 to 100 car dealerships a month to use our product, but it required a lot of implementation, yeah. like installing. We had 50 people that, that were trained that were on, on site, do a week of training, we had to build websites, we had to import CRM data. Like it wasn't a turnkey thing. It's not like you add a user on Twitter and then you just start tweeting. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, it took like <laughs> weeks to set up an account, right? Yeah. So, I mean, a whole bunch of people sign up and we can't install them fast enough. And then our sales team is taking phone calls all day from the people they signed up two months ago that are pissed off yeah. that we can't install them yet. Now they want their money back, right? So now I have a whole sales team that is all their, they're, they're taking nothing but phone calls from people that want to cancel and they can't sell anything because there's, they can't install it anyways. Yeah. Like it turns into a nightmare situation across the whole company. Yeah. We were like, just trying to figure out like, how do we grow this thing and, and like, keep it going? Yeah. Like we needed fuel to put in this thing. We had a great thing, but we didn't have enough fuel. That's great. So now you're looking for 
a partner that provides that fuel or are you saying, yeah. no, no, we got to get off, got get off the ship now? We were totally looking for money of, okay. of how do we grow this thing. Okay. So that, therein lies the story of, you know, we thought at that time our initial offers were, say, $70, $80 million. And um, one of my favorite things that ever happened in my life was th- that process was fun. Like we went to San Diego and San Francisco and we're meeting with different people and, and doing the whole roadshow of all this, right? And it, there became an expression between me and a couple of the other founders, you know, shareholders was I would just call them up and be like, every day, every day, because there was a better offer every day. Like it was crazy. Like that was the joke. It was like every day, you know, it's like we talked to so-and-so and then we talked to so-and-so and they increased their offer by 5 million and whatever. And like, it was crazy because, you, you know, you start from 80 and then yeah. eventually we got over like a hundred. Right. And so it was just like every week or two, we just kept getting better and better offers. And it was it was crazy. Can I, let me understand. So these are offers to actually buy the company. They're not how we're valuing you to buy minority share. This is, hey, we want to own the business. It was both. Oh, it was both. Okay. It was both. So valuation. Yeah, it was like, going. oh, you know, we're Excel or KKR yeah. or JMI or whatever, like different, all these different firms or whatever we had talked to, right? Yeah. And they're, they're like, oh, we'll invest it in 80 pre, you know, 25 million or whatever the term. Sure, for, sure, right? sure. And so you're saying every day to one buyer that's saying, Hey, we want to, we want to get this done. And you're like, Nope, it's just, it's going up. It's going up. I, you know, I love you said 70 to 80 million, right? So that's like two times revenue. I don't know what EBITDA looked like at that point, but did that feel like that was close to what the industry evaluation would be is two times revenue? I think, I mean, SaaS valuations back then are totally different than they were now. Right, Right, right. And, you know, looking back, it's like, man, we probably should have sold this thing for like over 200 million, (laughs) 300 million, right? Like a lot more. But for us, we owned 100% of the company. And so if you take $100 million and divide it like three or four ways, that's how it was getting split up. And we were okay with it. It was a lot of money. Yeah, that's uh, (laughs) that's multi-generational wealth. That's fantastic. Yeah. All right. So. All right. But we, we all know, right, that the end number, 150 million to auto trader. Tell me, how did that how did that happen? Were they the lead dog the whole time? So that's a funny story. So there's there's two funny pieces of this I want to tell. Okay. So one of these firms made us a good offer, a really good offer. And my business partner at the time had this crazy idea. He's like, you know what? We're going to fly back out there. We're going to meet with them. And when I say this, I, I'm thinking of Silicon Valley, the HBO show where he goes around and he uh, lays it all on the table. That's what this felt like. We go out there and and he has the guts to tell them like, hey, we came all the way out here because we just don't understand why your offer was so low. Like we just don't understand. Mm -hmm. They literally had made the highest offer before. Okay. (laughs) And he had the guts to tell them this. And sure enough, every day got a better offer the next week. Numbers went up. It, it was it, it was like the craziest, gutsiest thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. But it paid off. We, the, the numbers just kept going up and up and up. So ultimately, we came down to, I think we had two or three offers to, we had like one good offer that was going to buy, you know, 30% of the company or whatever. And we had two that were total buyouts. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was some private equity. I don't remember who it was. And the other was a huge strategic in the industry. And so what was crazy is, the CEO of that company who who owned all of it too, mm-hmm. billionaire. Yep. He was a billionaire, one of the one of the top companies in the industry. I won't say the yep. name. But he flew out with us and met with us. And this is a crazy story. He flew out, met with us, met with the team, did all these kinds, did all the stuff. In Kansas City. And um Is this in, in Kansas, Kansas City, okay. came yep. to our office. Yep. 
And but we had we had signed nothing. And so he called his lawyer and said, hey, I need to get the LOI or whatever sent over and get it done and blah, blah, blah. Colin's lawyer and his lawyer didn't do it. And at the end of the day, he's like, okay, we'll follow up with the paperwork tomorrow. We'll get the LOI signed, all this stuff. And we hugged him. Like literally (laughs) I hugged the billionaire on the deal. (laughs) And but we never had any paperwork. We had nothing signed. And so we called Auto Trader that night and said, hey, you know what? You've been busy. You acquired Kelly Blue Book and Viato and all these other things. We know you didn't have time to talk to us. We're going to sell the company to X, Y, and Z. And they're like, no, you're not. We will be there in 48 hours and you will wait for us. And we're like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then they came in and and offered us substantially more. And in some sense, the other company that we almost sold to was kind of like the galactic empire of the industry mm-hmm. and anybody who's listening to this that knows the industry would automatically know who they yeah, are yeah. just from that statement they were just like this terrible company that like everybody kind of hates and we didn't really want to sell to them but we're like they were making the biggest offer sure. and it's like you know what whatever i just will take the money and run and so it was a breath of fresh air to sell to auto trader and auto trader was fantastic um all along the way they, they were super and so it's owned by Cox Automotive, which is Cox Communication and Valpac and Mannheim Auctions. And like they went on and bought like 20 different companies awesome. in automotive. They own all sorts of stuff that nobody knows what is, but it's a huge conglomerate now. That's great. Now, can you tell me, did, did you have an M&A team, investment banking, M&A attorneys? What, how'd you surround yourself? Yeah. So before we started this process, we worked with a firm called Presidio that was out of San Francisco. And so, yeah, they helped run the whole process for us and- they had done some deals on automotive before, so that's why we had leaned on them. But yeah, they charged an insane amount of money to do it. Mm-hmm. It was crazy how much they charged. But but um, yeah, they helped us prepare for it and do financial models and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, they you know having a partner to help do that was definitely extremely helpful for us to help navigate all that kind of stuff. Dealing you know every day like dealing with the everyday yeah. of following up with all these people. So it was very helpful. Yeah, you can get inundated. So it's nice to have somebody that's kind of hurting, hurting the cats. But you know, whether it's today or back then, you had growth rate, you had profitability, you have exciting SaaS. Um, I can imagine, right? Everybody is interested in buying a company like that. And it can't be more true than it is today after going through kind of the real bubble where profitability wasn't a big thing. And not many SaaS companies can say that they're profitable. Well, so here's the best part of the story. So you look at like the rule of 40, right? Which is your growth rate plus your margins. We would have been off the chart because when we sold, we were making like a million dollars a month in profit or some shit. So we were doing 35 million a year, but you know, our, our we were probably making close to 10 in, in profit and growing a hundred percent. So, I mean, we, we were off the charts on all those numbers and yeah, if we were selling today, yeah, the multiples probably would have been 10x or something. So Matt, what would you say to your fellow founder, right? We get a lot of these calls. I'm making so much money every month. I don't want to sell for that number, right? They're going into a process. They're making a decision to sell. And then when they look at that price, they say, well, if I just do this for three more years, I'll get that same amount of money and be able to sell my business again. How would you respond to a founder like that? Well, honestly, I have a couple of thoughts there. And so one thing I always tell people, it's like, okay, if you sell the company, what are you going to do with the money that's going to provide a higher rate of return than what you're getting today? Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're growing 40% a year and, and 
you know, the company is successful and all that, you can just keep going and you keep going. Right. So I get it. And, and, you know, I think about it that way. Um, I also understand that you want to diversify. You're like, look, I have all of my money in here or it's like, yeah, I have a hundred employees and I pay all them great, but I don't have anything. Like I, I can't, I don't have any money. I'm just reinvesting it all. Right. Or you want to diversify and all these things. Like I get it. And it's also easy to get caught up like us. We're like, oh, the company's worth a hundred million dollars. And we're like, oh, well, if we just wait 12 months, mm-hmm. we'll double in size. It'll be worth 200 million. And we wait again, it'll be worth 400 million. Like it's easy to get into that too. But at some point in time, you just take the money and run. Mm-hmm. You just, it's enough. And, and enough money is enough money or you get burnt out and you don't want to deal with it anymore. Like a friend of mine is in this stage now. It's like they built this great company. It's got 50 employees. And they're like, they hate every single minute mm-hmm. of it. They hate it. Like the company has outgrown them. And I was chatting with another friend this weekend. Same thing. He's like, oh, I'm, I love what we're doing. But he's like my co-founder. He's like just not into it anymore. Yeah. He's burnt out. He wants to do something different. But he doesn't want to step down. He doesn't want to want it to look like that and and they're they're in that situation where it's like hey maybe if you could buy the co-founder out or whatever like i think everybody gets to a point too where it outgrows them or they're just done enough of it and people always ask me like oh what's it like to sell your baby after eight (laughs) or nine years or whatever i'm like dude it felt good it felt great Yeah, I think we're we're in like a, we're in a different generation. I think where previously the baby boomers they built a company for forty or fifty years and they sell it at the mm-hmm. end and they view, view it as their baby and they're definitely not maximizing or the majority are not maximizing because they're selling really at the end. Whereas the younger generations are seeing, oh my gosh, this is life changing money. I'm going to do this three more times, and what I'm really doing is buying myself time. Right, I get to sit back, think about what's the next one, and be as excited to do the next one as I was on day one. You know, doing the one that we're selling. So, yeah, I never want to encourage a founder to sell a business just to do another transaction. But I think you know when it's time, when your heart's not in it, or your, you know, your co-founder's heart isn't in it. This is a career path that you can do multiple times. Two thoughts there. I mean, first of all, the the valuations of SaaS companies is just stupid. Yep. Like, I would say, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's relatively easy to start a SaaS company that could be worth, say, $5 million or more. Now, I'm not talking like a billion-dollar company, sure. but just $5 million, yep. right? Grow it to a million or a couple million dollars in revenue with a little business mm-hmm. that's worth $5 million or more, right? That's not that hard to do. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's really easy yep. and anybody can do it, but it's not crazy hard to do these days the valuations of all this stuff are absolutely absurd what some of these companies are worth like and then the other part of it is you talk about selling it is if you're rolling over so i my second company i sold and this something i mentioned to you earlier is you got to be careful like if you're if you're not taking all cash if you're rolling equity on Mm -hmm you know, what, who is buying you and all of that is a big concern as well. Well, let's, before we get into the second one, I want to touch on what you just said, because it's, it's really smart. We see clients that once they get to about a million of ARR, right, that recurring revenue, there is a market out there. Under a million, there are some other ways of posting that business online and finding sales. But if you really want to maximize, we say minimum, get that 1 million. I mean, we did a transaction last year, which was just about at that 1 million. We sold it to a public company. And this kid after earnout, I say kid, anyone under 40, I think I call a kid now. <laughs> but this guy is going to have $100 million, right? So there is the insanity 
in that that can be created. Now, what I would say is if you can get to two and a half, three million of ARR, the buyers come running because there's some point of getting to that million where you're kind of replatforming, getting the sales team into a different place to get to that three million of ARR. Um, you've got kind of a real business engine behind it. And that tends to, to pull even higher multiples. The next kind of category that really defines bigger valuations is 10 million. So I would say it's great advice, right? If you know what you're doing and you've got a customer in hand to build a SaaS product around and you think you can get to that million uh, of ARR, there is real options for liquidity. Well, and I would also say, though, just because you did this once, it does not mean you can do it again. So. Yes. You know, I had success the first time and then the second time was way harder, Sig significantly harder, right? right. Like we got to jump into that. So, so Vin Solutions, you knock one out of the park. You're going to go do it again. It's Stackify is number two. Stackify. All yeah. right. So tell me what made you, well, first, did you do an earn out and then get out or did you just walk away after kind of like handing over the, a couple months of handing over the keys? How did that work before you're totally free? So it's kind of a funny story. So with Venn Solutions, we had an earnout, but it was only like seven months long. And so true. So this is a story. We got after Thanksgiving break. I walk in like first week of December. I go to our CEO, Mike, my main business partner. I'm like, hey, Mike, we just sold the company for a shitload of money. I don't even know what all the terms were. I just signed hard three copies, cash the check, whatever. Yeah. How long do I have to work here? Like, I don't even know. Like, because, but our earnout was basically over the first week of December, right? It's like, if we sell anything new, the revenues in January, if somebody cancels, it affects in January, like our earnout's over. And I, I was starting to itch about what am I going to do next? And I asked him like, you know, how long do I have to work here? And it was funny. He told me, he's like, Matt, they abolished slavery a long time ago. If you don't want to work here, you don't have to work here. Yeah. They don't want you walking around like a zombie every day either. Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to be here, you can just leave. So I was like, I'm out. <laughs> and that was it. I was like, Grab I'm going to go do this Stackify thing. I had this idea to go do Stackify and, and that was it. So, all right. That's awesome. Take me through Stackify. You, you got the idea. You're getting yeah. it up and running. And you you sold that business as well? We did. And so the okay. original idea was, you know, I was the chief technology officer. You know, I was a tech guy, the product guy at Venn, yeah. and dealt with all sorts of issues with performance and scalability and, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, man, we need to build a set of tools to help software developers do this. And mm -hmm. at the time, I didn't really see like that those tools that existed. And mm -hmm. so that was the idea was to go create that and started doing that in, in 2012. And that was so hard. Like selling to software developers is mm -hmm. so incredibly difficult. And that was the major learning of the whole thing. Like just the go-to-market strategy, understanding the go-to-market strategy is more important than the product itself. And I picked like the worst possible industry to try and sell something into. But we we were successful with it. We grew, you know, we were on the Inc. 500 and all that kind of stuff and and growing. But we were competing against some bigger companies like New Relic and Datadog and AppDynamics mm -hmm. and stuff and that were all worth billions of dollars. But when I started in 2012, like they didn't really exist or they weren't on yeah. the radar. Like I think Datadog started after I did, but they they came out and eventually it became harder and harder before we sold the company. And then so we ended up selling it to a strategic that rolled it up as like private equity roll up kind of thing, basically. Yeah, I, I definitely want to learn about that sale, but I think it it deserves to be said, right? Those competitors, they raised a bunch of capital, right? So oh, they yeah. could just throw so much money at marketing. They didn't care what their CAC was, right? And your 
I don't know if it's bootstrap, but probably using a lot of your own money and really conscious of yeah. profitability. How much am I going to spend to get this exactly. new customer? That is a tough game to play in, but it was fantastic that you you know got to a point where it was of real value to a private equity group. So you sell this business. Can you talk to me about that process? Did you get a new team? Did you go back to Presidio, the same group? You know what prompted the sale, and who did you use? Well, so as you know, recently, you know. And not really recently, I guess all the time, right? Entrepreneurs get random emails all the time about, yep. and some of them are crazy. They're like, I got this fund to buy one business and like yep. all this kind of crazy stuff, right? So oh, I yeah. usually ignore all of those. But I got a random email one day from somebody to like, hey, I'm working on behalf of this strategic. They're looking to do acquisitions in this space. And I email them back what I usually do. I'm like, hey, if you have a serious buyer, I'm interested. But if you're just like an investment bank that wants me to go run some big, long process, like I'm not into that right now. And they're like, no, 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 we have a strategic buyer. They're very serious. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll talk to them. And that was it. Like, that was the whole process. They wow. made the introduction, uh, talked to Netrio, who was who, who we sold to. And, you know, we worked out pretty quickly that it would work and made a deal. That was it. So I think the thing we wanted to really touch on on StackFi is the earnout portion, right? So you're selling into a private equity firm and you're taking a, a sizable chunk of your compensation in what rolled equity is that how they call it it was it was a mixture right it was a mixture of cash and equity and and earn out you know like a lot of deals right it was a, it was mm -hmm. a mixture of different things yeah yep and so can you describe that because i think that's a real black box for a lot of founders of what what does rolling my equity really mean and and how much control do i have of my earn out all of that so that's the struggle right when you especially when you're small so the, the mistake that I think that they made that we made is we were fairly small. We had about 25 employees and they had like, I think like 50 to 100. I don't remember exactly. Okay. And they didn't leave us like as a fully autonomous business. They kind mm -hmm. of absorbed us and we had to assimilate. And that was the challenge there is we sort of assimilated with them and, and they thought it was best to combine the support teams and the sales teams and all the stuff. And that did not go very well for us. That 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 did not go great. And that's the struggle with these kind of acquisitions, right? Like if I had to do it all over again, I'd be like, hey, we want to just be left completely alone. You support us, you know, you know, help fuel our growth and and whatever. But unfortunately, we had to like all assimilate together. And then I think we just kind of got lost in the assimilation. And you, how long were you there? Or how long did you have was, to be there? I was only there for six months or something like that. Like, okay. you know, I, I thought I was thought I was going to stay and be like the chief technology officer of the combined companies and whatever. And ultimately, based on what they were doing and, and the forecast of growth and how they wanted to integrate and do all these things and whatever, I just decided I'm like, you know what, I don't know that you guys need me based on your plans. Like, you can do this without me. I don't, I'm not going to provide a lot of value here. So I'm just going to let you guys do this thing and I'm out. Got it. Okay. And, and what would be your advice to your fellow founders in so, based on that experience? Yeah. I mean, anytime you're rolling equity, just being careful of like almost like you have no idea what's, you almost have to write it off and be like, assume you're going to get nothing for it. You wish for mm -hmm. the best. But the, the, the biggest feedback I have there is, especially watching out for people that are doing private equity and they're levering it up with debt. Because the problem is you have a company, if somebody buys you and they're levering it up with debt, they have like these huge interest payments that they have to pay every month. And so they can't really invest in growth. Like they borrowed a ton of money to acquire you. Now they have to pay back that loan. 
So they don't have like a bunch of capital necessarily to invest in growth. They're just worried about paying back the debt. And I would be super concerned for anybody that is going into those situations. But it all depends on your industry and your growth rate and all these things, right? But unless you're just killing it and you're you're just growing like crazy and you're spitting off lots of profit, be really careful. I mean, if you're just like treading water or you're losing money or whatever, like the last thing you want to do is now like, oh, now you pay a hundred grand a month in interest payments. Yeah. yeah. You barely were making any money before, but it's okay. Now you also have a hundred thousand dollar debt to pay back, right? Like whatever those numbers are, just be careful, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Matt, it occurs to me, you know, you had your first exit and you know, you, you've got kind of multi-generational wealth at this point. You're, you're an entrepreneur. So you go take another at bat. Why did you want to sell this one? I know there were head competitive headwinds, um, but was there something else that you were trying to achieve other than, you know, top dollar on this one? For me, I think it was the competitive headwinds. It's like, this yep. This is brutal. This is hard. I just felt like the, the way this company was going to be successful was to be part of a larger strategic that could bring in the more funding, you know, and so they, the company that, that we sold to was bigger than us and, and all those things. Right. And so that, that was the bet and the promise of like, okay, we're going to roll into something bigger. And that's why we would roll equity, right? Like, Hey, we're going to roll some equity into this thing and, you know, hope for the best and hopefully in their stewardship, right. It can grow and be bigger and all that kind of stuff. That's great, Matt. Matt, thanks so much for this time. I really appreciate it. You have varied and, and a lot of experience around building and selling companies. And I know you're on to this uh, third one that sounds like it's a rocket ship already. So best of luck. I'm actually on to the fourth one for, for another That's conversation. Ha- so. Yeah, we got to hear about that for sure. All right. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.